as we tie together all of these lessons across the scriptures, beginning in the Garden of Eden in the days of man's innocence and of his rebellion against God, all the way to the birth of our Savior. This morning we'll read from Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 12. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we continue to come before your word, we give thanks to you because your word is trustworthy and it's true. It directs us to the source and the path of life, and it leads us safely to you. And as we listen this morning, God, once again, we ask that you would speak for your servants are listening. Amen. It's in his Spartan two-act play, Waiting for Godot, that Samuel Beckett explores some of the main existential questions of life that encounter every one of us who walk on the earth. In the play, there are two main characters who you may be familiar with, Vladimir and Estragon. These characters meet near a tree, and after conversing about several things, they discover that they have something in common. They are both there at the tree to meet a man named Godot. The day wears on, Godot has not shown up. And a boy arrives, and he claims to be a messenger sent from Godot. He relays that Godot will not be turning up today, but certainly will come tomorrow. Act one then ends with Vladimir and Estragon saying that they're going to leave, but they're standing there motionless as the curtain comes down. Act two begins as Vladimir and Estragon return the next day to the tree, there to wait once again for Godot. The day goes much the same as the previous one, repetitious activities, and once again the boy arrives and he announces that Godot once again will not be coming. The boy even denies of delivering that message the day before. Vladimir and Estragon begin to discuss their options. 
They contemplate hanging themselves in an extreme measure, but then realize they had no rope to perform the task. So once again, they decide to leave. But as the curtain falls, bringing the play to an end after only two acts, the two men continue to stand there motionless. The play raises a series of questions, been subject to many different forms of interpretation. Beckett himself refused to comment to provide the interpretation. But it does present to us the crisis and the tension of what it means to wait on God in the middle of our fallen and our weary world. It asks questions as, is this waiting in vain? Is everything that we are reading about today, is it all really just a hoax? And what exactly are the limits of the waiting that we can do? In Scripture, over the past few weeks, we've discovered that waiting is commended as a virtue and as a discipline, as something core to the Christian life. And this morning, we read the long story of God's promises spoken to Israel in which he would send a son of David into the world who would bring blessing to his people, but not only to his people, but to all the nations of the earth, that he would give them rest. And Israel waited and waited for the day of his arrival. But then we have the fulfillment of all of those promises as we've read from Luke chapter 2. Jesus arrives, born in lowly and humble form. But now today, the waiting is still not yet done. Yes, the promises are fulfilled. The Savior, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Reconciler has entered into the world. But yet we await for the final consummation of all of those promises when God comes once again in a second advent, when Jesus turns up and he makes all things right and he restores all things. And so for the Christian, it is critical to ask and to answer the question, how exactly do I wait well? In Isaiah 25, we find a contrast that's set up. It's a contrast set up between two mountains, two nations, two cities, Zion on one hand and Moab on the other. One is a city of hope. The other is a city of human striving. God's hand of blessing is upon one city, and his foot tramples the other. And the key difference between these two cities, between Zion and Moab, is that one waits on God and the other presses ahead in their own strength. This is what we read in verse 9. It will be said on that day, this is in Zion's mountain, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And this is the key characteristic of the city that God's hand blesses. It is the city that waits. And so for us this morning, we need to answer the question, how exactly do we sustain that waiting? 
in all the weariness, in all the mundaneness, in all the frustration of what it means to stand with Vladimir and Estragon by the tree waiting for Godot? What does it look like for us to sustain that waiting and not to grow tired and weary? Two things that we must keep clear sight of in order to sustain that waiting. But first, our waiting requires a clear sight of the problem. That is the problem we encounter as we wait. In verse 10, we discover the problem. It is the problem that afflicts Moab. Moab is simply a nation that stands for all the nations. We see there that God's hand of blessing will fall on Zion in verse 10. That's the city that waits for him. But his foot tramples down Moab, and this is what we learn in detail. Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. It's graphic imagery. A refuse pile of trash and human excrement said that Moab is trampled down there. But what's important for us is to recognize how Moab responds to this judgment. If you follow into verse 11, and he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. Many people have found this verse mystifying. Exactly what does it mean? But it says once again, and he, this is speaking of Moab, will spread out his hands in the midst of it, and the it refers to the dunghill. And so Moab is pictured as a swimmer inside of the refuse pile, attempting to escape the judgment of God. This judgment that God has assigned to Moab due to its rebellion and turning against him, Moab attempts to escape by its own ingenuity and by its own strength and by its own resources. It's self-reliance and it's self-effort. Moab attempts to swim out to escape the predicament of the dunghill inside of its own resources. In chapter 16, if you were to follow in verses 3 through 7, you would see there the offer of God to have mercy upon Moab, that they would shelter and find a refuge in the son of David, that they would come to Israel for salvation. But in chapter 16, we learn that Moab stiffened their neck and became stubborn. And this is what is said, we have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is, of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence, and his idle boasting, he is not right. And friends, this is the human problem known there in Moab and known among us as well. And if we are to wait on God, we must keep clear sight of it because the problem is a refusal to accept the grace and the mercy of God on God's terms. It's the stubborn insistence that lives in you and lives in me that we go at it alone, that we spread out our hands like a swimmer using our own resources, attempting to escape our predicament. It is this proud self-assertiveness that says that we have no need of God. 
And it's important to point out that this pride knows no bounds. In the Bible, we find that this pride lives inside religious communities. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus is speaking with a group of Pharisees, incredibly religious men who trusted in themselves. We also find Jesus encountering others who would be secularly oriented people who saw no need for external help to come in their lives from God. And human pride crosses all of these boundaries and seeps into everything. And what it haunts is a true waiting on God because it refuses to look to him in need and in the predicament, in the crisis and in the tension. We refuse to receive the mercy and the grace that is on offer from God and we rather turn to our own resources. And so we must keep an eye on this problem because it will interfere with our waiting. But the second thing we find here in Isaiah 25 is that our waiting also requires a clear sight of the promise. Not only must we understand the problem, but also we must gain greater insight and clarity about the promise that God holds out to the entire world. Earlier in the service, we read the majestic words of Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 11. And those chapters speak of a promised Davidic son. One who would come, and when he came, he would bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. We're told that his kingdom will reach from shore to shore. That it will include people of every class and every color. It will include people from every tribe and every tongue that he will not discriminate. That those who are welcomed will be those who look to him for grace and for mercy. We're told that this king would bring a profound healing, not simply to the peoples that are gathered there around his throne, but a healing would break out in all the creation, that predator and prey would be reconciled to one another, that human beings would no longer make war against one another, that there would be peace and rest and wholeness. And then all of this prophecy drives to a climax here in chapter 25. We read in verse 6 of a future feast, a banquet that God himself hosts. Isaiah refers back to Exodus chapter 24 where God hosts a meal on the mountain with the elders of Israel. But you'll see here that this meal is different because it's not just with the elders of the church that God welcomes into his presence. But the entire assembly of God's people ascends to the mountain. And why is that? They share this intimate and sacred feast of the finest gifts of creation. All the peoples, because they've been reconciled through David's greater son, Jesus. And they've been welcomed into that intimate holy place to know God and to walk with him. They're not invited because of their achievements, and they're certainly not invited because of their accomplishments. They're not invited because of their personal righteousness, and they're not invited for any accolades they've received in this life. They're invited for one distinct reason, and that is because Jesus stands in their place. That the son of David who came, he comes to give himself as a sacrifice for all. 
And when he comes, he reconciles us to God. And he removes our shame. He removes the reproach that God holds against us. And it's at this feast we learn in chapter 25 that another healing breaks out. In verse 7, what we see is that God swallows up death forever. And the claim is that God alone is the one who can affect this, that he's the one who can bring about this healing. And the reason, of course, being that he has defeated death once and for all in Jesus' resurrection that Jesus goes down into death and he receives our curse and our judgment. And then because he was the one righteous one, he's raised. And so he's the pioneer, the firstborn out of the dead. And on this great day, on this final day, the one that we wait for, Jesus will destroy and swallow death once and for all. We're told that God will wipe away the tears from our eyes. It's the tears and the cries and the pains that currently fill our weary world. It's the tears and the cries and the pains that occupy us in this room. It's all the sadness of a world that has rebelled against God and gone its own way in its pride. God promises to wipe away those tears. And not only will he negate those tears, but then he will replace them with gladness and with joy. And he will free the world from all of its sorrow. And God will dwell with his people. Beckett comments in Waiting for Godot, The tears of the world are a constant quantity. For each one who begins to weep somewhere, for for each one who begins to weep somewhere else, another stops. And friends, it is this fact that our world is full of tears and full of sorrow and full of sadness and death and evil and injustice and disease and death. And it is all those realities, those factors that drive many not to wait, to despair, to consider the rope that Vladimir and Estragon pondered. And friends, in order to encounter all of that pain and all of that sorrow, in order to wait through it, a clear sight of the promise, of the glorious day of rest that's promised on this mountain in that day, And to understand now in the present that it's guaranteed by this royal son of David that we've read about all morning. And because he has come into the world and fully identified with us in our flesh, and because he has gone down into death on your behalf and on my behalf, and then because he was raised from the dead, this is your security. And this is why you can wait. And so wait on him. Turn away from the way of pride and self-accomplishment and achievement and your own resources and turn in hope to this vision of rest, of creation made right, of your body being made whole, reconciled to God. Let's learn to wait in this way. And so let's ask God for his help.
Father, we recognize that in all of us there is a restlessness, and to wait upon you comes with great difficulty. Our world is sad and it is weary. It's filled with refractions of glory, shards of what should have been, and yet it's been shattered. And so God, teach us to wait. As we wait upon our Lord Jesus, he has fulfilled all of your promises, and we await the day of consummation. Give us grace, God, to wait well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.